You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. I'm real excited about the message this morning. Uh, Many of you know that we are in a series working through Nehemiah uh, entitled Restored, and we are in week eight of a, I think it's a 11-week series, and so we have three more to go. And this morning, we're in Nehemiah 8, 9 through 18, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, that would be awesome. So we're um, looking at particularly uh, how that the worship of God's people was restored. And so 150 years ago, this is just kind of a summary. This is a recap. This is kind of where we've been. This is kind of the backstory behind what's going on with Nehemiah. 150 years before this text, Jerusalem had been conquered by Babylon. And a bunch of the citizens were exiled, and then Jerusalem fell into ruin. And then Persia uh, conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem then the temple's restored, and the Nehemiah's responsible for getting the wall restored within 52 days. And then now that the wall has been restored, that means protection has been brought to the city, and now people's homes, they're living in their homes, and that's restored. And then in chapter 8, we see that their worship is restored. And so last week, Chip preached on how to preach a sermon. It was a unique uh, sermon, which I was thoroughly, you know, I don't know how you felt about it, but it was great to be able to see exactly how a sermon should be preached, and it was good for me so I could figure out what I'm supposed to do the next week when I get up here and actually preaching a sermon. Uh, And so he looked at the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8, which was an example that Nehemiah gave in preaching a sermon. And so I don't, can't remember if you mentioned this last week or not, but one thing I noticed that Nehemiah's sermon was all morning long, and it took up to six hours to preach that sermon. And so I know some of you may have come here uh, over the years and <clears throat> have uh, maybe complained quietly that some of the sermons have been a little too long at King's Cross, but they've never been six hours. So I think we're doing pretty good compared to the example that was given us in Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. So there's a good chance that in Ezra, uh, preaching through the um, book of the law, the book of Moses, there's a good chance that he actually used Deuteronomy, maybe in its entirety, maybe those portions of Deuteronomy that he was preaching through. And Deuteronomy is a book that contains what Jesus would refer to as the greatest commandment. So there's a good chance that Nehemiah actually Uh, read the greatest commandment, which Jesus quotes uh, several times in the Gospels. And this is uh, Jesus quoting the great commandment in Mark 12, 30. And so a guy comes to Jesus. He's actually trying to put him to the test, and he asks this question. He says, what commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus' answer was this. In verse 29, he says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So I should and you should. I mean, if Jesus is saying this is the greatest commandment and you're thinking, well, where do I start when I'm trying to figure out how do I follow Jesus? 
I think starting with the greatest commandment would be a good place to start and a good place to camp out really for the rest of your life. And I need to be practically, and you need to be practically asking yourself the question, how can I live out the greatest commandment in all areas of my life? Like in my marriage, how can I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? In my parenting, in, in my job, in my school, or in my sport, every hour of the day, every day of the week, we should be trying to figure out how we can live out the greatest commandment in our lives. And that includes Sunday mornings as well. So this morning, we're going to focus on how to live out the greatest commandment when listening to a sermon. Specifically, how do I listen to a sermon in such a way that I'm loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading this grouping of heart, mind, soul, and strength, and sometimes the Bible will throw in spirit as well, uh, it's hard for me to really distinguish between what's the difference between uh, the soul and the heart, mind, and strength. And so um, I think this may be the difference. Um, recently, one of, um, a friend of mine just passed away, and I've been thinking about um, like the soul versus the body, and you know, eventually our bodies will be made new, and we will be physically living with Jesus. And I think even now there are physical aspects to heaven as well, but Paul talks about in Philippians 1 is to be apart from Christ, is to be with the Lord. And so when I think about the heart, mind, soul, and strength, the soul is who you are, and that is who you are right now, and whoever you are as a person, that's your soul. And when you die, your soul will go to be immediately with the Lord. You will be with the Lord. So the soul is who you are. What you have is your heart, your mind, and your strength. And so what I don't want to look at this morning is how specifically can we listen to a sermon with what we have, who we are as our soul and what we have as our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So here we go. Let's look at the passage. Uh, we're going to read all uh, nine or ten verses, uh, starting with Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... And Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people. We're going to come back to that. The Levites calmed all the people in their grief and saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it with all their in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, 
as it is written, so the Lord, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So Nehemiah shows us in 8, 9 through 11, he shows us three things that we can do during the sermon on Sunday mornings and really any time we open up God's word to listen, to read, to study, to memorize, or to meditate. Practically, the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is can happen during the sermon. You're actively doing this during the sermon. And then depending on how well you are listening, the next two things we're going to talk about that we're going to observe from this passage is actually a byproduct of how well you listen. And so we've got three points on your bulletin. I know there's lots of lines on there. We're going to run through quickly, some slowly during the first one and then quickly during the last uh, set of blanks. And so if you want to access, if you don't have a bulletin, you can also access an online bulletin online as well. So be patient with the first one. We're going to go slow, but then we're going to pick it up really quick at the end. So Nehemiah 8, 9, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The first way in which we can love God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and how we should actively listen to a sermon is to consider with your mind. And verses 9 through 12 has this, to consider with your mind. So the people listened and they considered what God was saying to them, and they were convicted. You may have noticed in the passage that they cried and they grieved at such a level when they're hearing God's word that the Levites had to calm them down three times. So you can love God with your mind even now by considering what God is saying to you. This is how you love God with all your mind, is considering the word that he's saying to you. And I think there's three ways you can be convicted by God's word. You can be convicted to depending on the passage you're hearing and depending on what's going on in your life and depending on how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you can, can be convicted to stop doing wrong. So you listen to God's word and, and you're convicted that you've been doing something that you shouldn't be doing, that God has commanded not to do, like lying or stealing or cheating or manipulating, uh, some type of violence or lust or adultery or bullying or gossip or slander. I mean, you name it. What God has commanded that we shouldn't do, that we're doing. You consider God's word and you are convicted to stop a particular sin against God. You stop doing wrong. Or, depending on the passage and depending on what's going on in your life and depending on how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, uh, you may be convicted to start doing right. You listen to God's word and you realize you have not been doing what you should be doing, like getting more involved in church or sharing the gospel with your friends or investing in your family more or being excellent in your school or your job or being generous. You are convicted 
to start doing something that God has commanded you to do that you haven't been doing. Or it could be that you're convicted to keep doing right. That you listen to God's word and you realize there's some places in your walk with Jesus that you've been doing quite well. And you were convicted to do, as the great MC Hammer's classic, Too Legit to Quit says, to press harder than you ever did before. So I've been listening to Too Legit a lot. We have pregame meals for the football team. So I just got that running in my mind, to press harder than you ever did before. But just like you can't become a Christian on your own self-induced effort, you can't grow as a Christian that way either. If you're going to endure, or if you're going after life change, enduring life change, if you want to see change that sticks, you have to go below the surface and identify what you are believing and even, even misbelieving. An example that comes to mind is, you know, if you've ever been at the beach, and hopefully you haven't been in this situation, but uh, maybe you have, at least we've seen movies that have the situation, you know, there's a lot of people in the water, and you're standing on the beach, and you see this fin out in the water, and he's, the fin's just kind of circling around, and you see these people that are not aware of this fin that's circling around, and you feel this responsibility to warn people about what you're seeing. Okay, so what do you say? Well, I'll tell you what you don't say is, probably, because I think it'd be silly, is if you yell out, fin, fin, fin. I mean, yeah, that's what we see. But the fin's not the problem. The problem is what's under the fin. And so therefore you yell, shark, shark, shark. So your consideration and conviction can't just aim at what you do. It has to go deeper and address what you believe. It's not just the fin. There's a shark under the fin. That's a whole lot more dangerous than the fin. So you need to not just stop doing wrong or start doing right or keep doing more. We need to stop believing lies. You must stop believing what is false about God and yourself and others. The shark underneath the fin is to start believing truth. You, need to, you must start, start believing what is true, not just the lies, but you need to flip that and say, I need to start believing what is true about God myself and others. And then I need to keep believing more. You may already be believing what's true, but you need, you may be simply convicted to keep believing and pressing in to the truths that you know to be true. So it's easy to identify a sinful action. It's harder to identify a misbelief that is below the surface. So whether you are in your bed at home or at your desk at the office, or you're walking in here on Sunday mornings, when God's word is open, you should be praying this prayer. And this is a classic good prayer to pray whenever God's word is open before you. And that's Psalms 139, 23 through 24. It's, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I was actually trying to pray this prayer earlier this week. I was just driving down the road, and the Holy Spirit just convicted me to pray this prayer, and I didn't want to pray it because I was feeling pretty good. I was doing okay. And to pray Psalms 139, to ask God to search me and know my heart and to try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way and reveal that so that I can know the way everlasting, 
I just wasn't really motivated to do it. But what I need to tell myself and what you need to tell yourself is that when we see our sin for what it is, and particularly the misbelief that's causing the sin, and then would repent, we actually experience God even more than before, and therefore we experience the joy of knowing him that comes with that. And so repentance always leads to joy. And so it is in our best interest not only to follow God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, but experiencing him in such a deeper way that we would never experience before if we had not prayed that prayer and asked him to point out ways in which we can repent and be drawn closer to him. So three times in these four verses, the people were told to calm down and stop crying. But it was actually right. It was a good thing for them to be grieved because they were sinners. And it was right for them to stop and rejoice because Ezra is saying, this day is holy, so therefore you need to rejoice. This day is set apart. It's a special day. But that was on the other side of the cross. So that's before Jesus came and reconciled us to God through his death. And so now on Sunday mornings, and really any time you open the Bible, it's still right for me and you to be grieved by our sin and how we have fallen short of God in specific ways. But it's also crucial for your grief to run in the direction of the cross where you, so we're not talking about the day now, we're talking about you have been made holy if you have received Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you're a Christian, so that your grief will quickly turn to rejoicing. And if you are not a Christian, you can be made holy today by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, by running into the cross so that your grief can quickly turn into rejoicing. So in verses 9 through 12, we see that their mourning and weeping and grieving turn into rejoicing. And that's exactly what the gospel does. So Romans 1.16, a, a verse that many of you are familiar with, probably even some of you have memorized Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the same gospel that you received that rescued you from your sin when you became a Christian is the same gospel that can rescue you, that can deliver you right now and tomorrow and next week and for the rest of your life. On Friday mornings, Bo Butler... Uh, has been uh, taking us through. It's a men's Bible study on Friday mornings. He's been taking us through a book called Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. And this has been an incredibly eye-opening study for me. Jeff gives incredible insight regarding how you can take ungodly fruit in your life, ungodly, unrighteous fruit in your life, get below the surface where misbelief happens, and address it at its root. So Jeff has, in his book, Gospel Fluency, has four questions to get from ungodly fruit that you recognize to go to the root, and then he has four questions to get you from the root back to godly fruit so that you can experience godly fruit in your life. And so whether it's anger or lust or deceit or gossip, whatever, here are the first four questions. I want to give them to you. The first four questions to get you from the wrong kind of fruit to your, fruit of, to your root of misbelief to get you from the visible sinful action that you see to the misbelief below the surface. So here they are. 
first question I need to ask, regardless of what I'm experiencing, this is a sinful action against the Lord, what am I doing or what am I experiencing right now? In light of what I'm doing or experiencing right now, what do I believe about myself? What do I believe God has done or is doing? And then what am I believing God is like? And then after you answer those four questions, then you need to get from the root to the right kind of fruit, which is real life change. You reverse the questions, so you come backwards. So you're going down, this is what I'm experiencing, you're trying to figure out what this misbelief is that I believe wrongly about who I am and who God is. And then I'm going to start asking me some questions to decide, well, who really is God is, who really is God, and therefore, who really am I? And I'm going to come out of that misbelief into true belief so that I can start obeying God with my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so here are four questions. Who really is God? What has God really done that shows me who he is? Who am I in light of what God has done? Who am I in light of what God has done? And then how should I live in light of who I am? All right, so I know those are a lot of questions, and I don't expect you to write them down, and that's okay if you didn't, because I'm about to give you something I think is going to be really helpful. For instance, here's an example of how you can use these questions to do gospel work below the surface. This is good, what I'm about to say, <laughs> what I'm so excited about. This is so good and so important and has been so eye-opening to me that I want you to have a written example of how this works. And so if you look in the seat back in front of you, You'll see the connection cards, but you'll also see a sheet of paper in there, a half sheet of paper. So I'd like for you to grab that, grab that half sheet of paper. You'll see Romans 1.16 at the top, that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then you'll see a verse, Ecclesiastes 7.9. For those of you that are over 40, I'm sorry the font's so small. <laughs> What I've learned to do in those situations is take my iPhone, take a picture of it, and blow it up. But I can only fit so much on the sheet of paper. So, but at least I want you to have this as a resource. Uh, so we're going to use this as an example. So Ecclesiastes 7.9. So you open up the Bible and, you know, for your quiet time in the morning, and you see this verse. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, but anger lodges in the heart of fools. So how do we be convicted by the word in such a way that we get out, take that conviction and turn it into fruit in our lives that glorify God? So let's say you have a quick temper. We'll just assume everybody in here has a quick temper. And you consistently exhibit outbursts of anger. It's affecting your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, your coworkers, your friends, so you happen to come across Ecclesiastes 7-9, and you are immediately convicted. Now, what do you normally do? What do I normally do? I see this. I have these outbursts of anger. It's affecting my relationships. Okay, God, I got to do better. I will do better. This is going to be a better day. I'm not going to, like, speak harshly to people that I come in contact with. However, and this is my experience when I do that, when that's my application, the next time someone irritates me, I immediately lash out at them. So conviction turns to grief and shame, and it stays there. There's none of this Ezra trying to say, hey, stop grieving. This day is holy to the Lord. I'm staying there. And you never experience, I never experience the joy of the Lord as my strength, as Ezra mentions in verse 10. And then my conviction never leads to rejoicing. So you got to get below the surface. 
at what you are believing. So you try out these questions. What am I doing, this is number one, or experiencing right now? This is what's written down on the sheet. So I'm just journaling through this. I'm answering the question. I'm angry when things don't go my way, when my schedule gets interrupted, and when people don't do what I need them to do. Don't raise your hand, but does that sound familiar? Can you identify? All right, number two. In light of what I'm doing or experiencing right now and what I believe, in light of what I'm doing or experiencing right now, what do I believe about myself? Well, I think I'm believing that I'm more important than others, my agenda is best, and I need to be in control. Is that a possibility? Maybe you're thinking that when you're irritated at other people interrupting your schedule or whatever your agenda is. Number three, what do I believe God has done or is doing? Well, I'm glad for the question because I don't think I've been thinking about this, but if I really get below the surface, maybe I believe subconsciously that God has stopped caring about me or he's trying to punish me by messing up my day. What am I believing God is like? This is question number four. Well, if I really think about it, maybe I think that God is distant, he's busy, maybe he's irritated at me. Okay. So once you get to that place, you got to come out of it, and you got to start speaking truth to yourself. So you ask these four questions. Well, who really is God? Well, I know that God has promised me in his word that he is near, he is present, and he is love. So I want to just pause here and say that it is crucial that you answer this question correctly about who God is if we're going to get to the place that we need to believe to get to in our belief and our action. And also, it goes without saying that the best way to know who God is is to read his word every day. The more you read and study his word, the more accurate your view of God will become. Something I do recently, I've done this a lot just about every day over the last few weeks, I've been consistently rehearsing who God is in my mind. I know this might sound kind of cheesy or corny, but this is just what I do, and it's actually kind of fun. And it's, but I consistently who God, rehearse who God is by using the alphabet to speak back to God on who he is. And so what I'll do is I'll just start with, this is kind of before my prayer time, sometime during the day, I might be driving down the road or I might be kneeling at my couch, and I'll just say, God, you are awesome. You're beautiful. You're caring. You're my deliverer. You're excellent. Over on the G, I can get several of those. You are gracious. You are good. You are great. And I go through the whole alphabet. And you need some help on the X's and Z's, you can come up to me afterwards. Really struggled hard on some of those, but I found some words or phrases. And so I'll just rehearse back who God is, and I use it as an opportunity to worship Him in that moment. It's a great way to worship, and it's a great way to be reminded of who he is so I can live in light of who he is. And the more you digest God's word, the more, the benefit is, the more you digest God's word, the more accurate you will be and the more adjectives you can come up with to ascribe to his attributes. And it's helped me become very proficient in my ABCs. And so I can tell you where an A is or where a P is and what's before or after. So that's number one. You got to figure out who really is God. And number two is, what has God done? This shows me who he is. Well, God demonstrated his love for me and showed me how much he cares for me by entering this world to 
take the punishment that I deserve by dying on the cross and reconciling me to himself. And he also has remained patient with me until that I would come to a point of repentance and belief to put my trust in him. And if I think about it, I think he's patient with me all the time in ways in which I realize now that I'm thinking about it and ways in which I probably don't even know. So number three, who am I in light of what God has done? Well, in light of what I've just looked at, I, I, I'm valuable. I mean, he died. He, he, he left his throne to come die on the cross for me. So I must be valuable. And my life and my very best is very important to him. Romans 8 talks about that. Uh, Romans 8 also says that he's not against me, that, that he's for me. And he loves me. And not only that, but he lives in me to give me the power to actually live according to his word. So number four is, well, how should I live in light of who I am? I should treat others as valuable and their very best interest is important because that's how God treats me. I should see interruptions as God's best for me and I should let God's love overflow from me to others. That's the gospel at work. And that's just anger, but it can be anything and everything, whether it's anxiety or pride or fear or hate or laziness, idolatry, and on and on. You need and I need the same gospel that saves you to still save you every day. You need the same gospel that rescues you to still rescue you every day. This is actually impacting how I pray for people. Before I would pray, all right, for this person and this person and this person and I think this person's a Christian, but I'm not sure if this person's a Christian. So, God, would you save this person if they're a non-Christian? And would you help this person grow if they are a Christian? But now my prayers have become a little more simpler and a little more easier. And I don't have to think through it much. I'm just praying that God's, the gospel would impact people's lives. If they're a non-Christian, that the gospel would impact that person's life and bring them to Christ. If they are a Christian, that every day the gospel would impact and influence and radically change and rescue and deliver that person in their walk with God. And so that's how you listen to a sermon with your mind. That's how you love God with all of your mind as you consider what he's saying and you apply God's word, particularly the gospel to it, so that you can get below the surface and discover your misbeliefs and speak truth into who God is and therefore who you are and therefore how you should live out the gospel in your life. So that's number one. And I said for the last few, we're going to fly through. So number two is obey with your strength. And Nehemiah 8 and uh, 14 and verse 16 says this, And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel would dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. God had commanded the Israelites, and we won't go into a lot of detail about this, but I'll just at least say this. He had commanded the Israelites once a year to live in booths in order to remember and celebrate when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and they lived in booths. So in a sense, it's kind of an Old Testament way to preach the gospel to themselves, right? This is how God delivered you out of your slavery, and I want you to be reminded of this by, during this festival, living in booths or tents. And, uh, but Israel had been ignoring this command because Israel had not been reading God's word. And so uh, 
that was the case until they heard God's word, and then they were grieved, and then they rejoiced, and they immediately obeyed. So Coach Herman Edwards, uh, former NFL coach, uh, head coach, he famously said, and this is crazy because I was going to use this quote from Coach Edwards anyway, Coach Herman anyway, uh, today, because I think it's a good quote for us today, and I found out that this is the 20th, October the 30th is the 20th anniversary of when he had his press conference. And so 20 years ago to this day, uh, Herm Edwards is getting some questions from reporters about how that his team, the Jets, are not doing very well, and he's trying to tell them, hey, we're not, not trying to do well, and this is what he says. You play to win the game. We get on the field. We're not playing for any other reason other than to win the game. The entire reason that we read and listen and study and memorize and meditate on God's Word is not just to fill our minds up. We don't stop with just considering what God's Word says. The reason we study the Word is to know God and to make Him known. The reason why we come in here and listen to a sermon is to know God and to make Him known. It's about life change. It's about crushing Satan and messing up his strategies as he tries to advance his kingdom. We say, no, 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 no. We're going to crush your strategies so we can advance God's kingdom. The reason we listen and read the Word is to win the game. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So your consideration and my consideration of God's word should lead to conviction, to obey, I think in three different forms, in three different ways. How you speak, this is in your bulletin if you want to jot this down, how you speak, it's one way in which we would obey with our mouth, that would be in parentheses, what you do. That's with your hands. And then where you go, and I think the feet symbolizes that. So how you speak with your mouth, what you do with your hands, and where you go with your feet. I think these are the ways in which God has called us to obey his word out of our belief in the gospel. So if God's word is not impacting what you believe or how you speak or what you do or where you go, then all you're doing This is pretty dangerous. This is the James 1 type stuff, and there's other passages that speak to this. All you're doing is raising the bar on what you're supposed to believe and do, and then the gap between your knowledge and action and your responsibility is increasing and expanding. And that's not a good place to do. To just increase your knowledge without applying is to make things worse for you, and thus you are deceiving yourself. So every time you open God's word, it should be to have such an impact on your life that it either directly or indirectly how you speak, what you do, and where you go. And the number three, we see this in Nehemiah chapter 8, is that they rejoice with their heart. And I've already referred to that several times, but we see this particularly in uh, verse 17. And all the assembly made booths and lives in booths. That was the obedience. And then there was very great rejoicing. The outcome of conviction and then obedience is always joy. The word is very clear about that. In fact, we see the example of Jesus in Hebrews chapter chapter 12, verse 2, where it says that the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Even the enduring was a joy because he knew where he was headed. And so the joy that was set before him. And so the result of conviction and obedience is always joy. Obedience may sometimes, though, feel like self-denial in the moment, 
But we need to remind ourselves that God is always after our joy. In fact, the passage that comes to mind for me is John 15, 10 through 11. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you so that in doing them, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So I think it's important. It's like, which one comes first? The way this is kind of laid out, and I think the normal way it happens is that you're convicted by God's word, and then obedience follows, and then joy is the result. But sometimes it's possible for you to obey, and personal conviction follows later. I mean, sometimes it's, oh, God, this is what you want me to do. Okay, I'm not necessarily feeling remorse or feeling grief about how whether... I've disobeyed you, even though I recognize that I've disobeyed you in the past, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to start walking in the light that you've given me, and I'm going to obey your command, and I believe, and this happens all the time in my life, particularly when it comes to sharing my faith. I may not be motivated or convicted to share my faith with this person, but as soon as I start doing it, the conviction is there, and like I'm experiencing joy even in the moment. So sometimes it's conviction, and then it's obedience that will lead to joy, But sometimes it's just obedience right off the start. And even that is faith. That's just not, you know, um, grueling it out and just making it happen. You are walking by faith and doing what God has called you to do. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and convicts you that this is right. And then the joy follows after that. But regardless of of the order, when you believe that God has the best for you and you obey what he says to do, it will result in a changed heart that produces joy. All right, so we, as we land the plane, uh, I want to just at least make one observation just in conclusion. So in one sense, what we've talked about is a message for Sunday morning, right? How to listen to a sermon. But I think it's real clear, even as we've kind of gone through this over the last few minutes, it's like, well, I don't have to just do this on Sunday morning. I can do this when I crack open the Bible tomorrow morning. And the answer is a resounding yes. And you actually see this in the text, that this is a word for every day of the week, like even tomorrow. Like if you look in verse 13, on the second day, they came together to study the words of the law. They said, oh, there's a lot here. Let's keep digging deeper. And so the next day, they're coming together, but they're opening God's word and they're studying what he has commanded them to do. And then in verse 18, uh, says that, and day by day from the first day to the last day, as we're read from the book of the law of God. And so it's not just on Sundays, it's not just on Monday morning, but it's every day of the week. So, and I just want to end on this. Tomorrow, consider, not only for today, but tomorrow, and then when you see how awesome that is, the next day and the next day, consider that the best way to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, is to start your day opening up his word so that you consider with your mind, so that you can obey with your strength, so that you can rejoice in the gospel with your heart. Let me pray. Father, when I think about your word, um, we just stand amazed. And I think this week has been that for me, that... As I have been in your word and studying and just been convicted by it and seeing things that I've never seen before because you are piercing my heart and showing me how the gospel really does work because the gospel is powerful and it penetrates. And Jesus, what you did for us on the cross 
was not just an example, but it was where you were bringing life and joy and reconciliation with you and even with one another to this world. And so, Lord, I think about uh, somebody said before that the word of God is shallow enough for a baby to swim in, but it's deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And so, Lord, thank you for showing us the depths of your word through the gospel. And I pray that it wouldn't stop this morning, but that it would continue on through the week. I pray that you would convict our hearts, that we would come to you with Psalms 139, asking you to show us how that we can better serve you so that we can experience you and the joy of your gospel in a deeper way. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.